We've heard that New York hospitals are like a war zone, but today we'll hear what it's like from a nurse who's serving in New York City on the front lines. Welcome to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's, and today I'm coming to you from my home where we're all sheltering in place. We're actually recording this podcast over Zoom, so you may notice a little difference in sound quality but I appreciate your patience as we're trying to make the best of a hard situation. And I so hope you're staying well and safe in your homes as well. But today I'm going to be speaking with someone who in my opinion is one of our heroes. God bless our medical personnel and first responders. These people are so brave. Instead of fleeing the danger, they're battling it head on. And joining me today is someone who's serving at Mount Sinai Hospital in Queens. This is the epicenter of the pandemic right now, and so I'm so looking forward to our conversation. But before we dive into our discussion, I want to take a minute to thank our sponsors. One of them is Marcourt of Barrington, and right now you can shop for a car at Marcourt from the comfort of your own home. To see their showroom, just go to buyacar123.com, and if you live in the Chicago area, Marcourt will drop off the car at your home for an extended test drive. Plus, right now, Marcourt is offering 0% financing for 84 months. That's seven years of zero interest. So again, just go to buyacar123.com. Also, I want to remind you that Judson University's next World Leaders Forum is October 20th at the Renaissance Schomburg Convention Center. And the speaker for that event will be General David Petraeus, a four-star general, and former director of the CIA. I know that's several months away, uh, which is a good thing given our current crisis, but I wanna encourage you to mark your calendars now for the World Leaders Forum on October 20th. For more information, just go to judsonu.edu. Well, again, joining me today is Ann Frears, a nurse serving at Mount Sinai Hospital in Queens. You may also recognize Ann's name because she was a source for an article I wrote several months ago. That article exposed how Harvest Bible Chapel failed to protect wives from abusive husbands. And Ann is one of those wives who bravely shared her story of abuse. So in my book, Ann is a hero for that as well. So Ann, welcome. It's such a pleasure to have you join me. Thanks for having me, Julie. So Ann, as I recall, you live in Virginia, not New York City. So I'm curious, how is it that you ended up working in the epicenter of this coronavirus pandemic instead of home in Virginia? Sure. Well, typical week, I work at Children's National in D.C., and I work in the pediatric cardiac ICU, which does a lot of open heart surgeries, things of that nature. Given the current situation, most surgeries have been canceled or census is way down. So I just wasn't working very much. And at the same point, I'm watching the news and these desperate pleas for nurses. And um, I just kind of couldn't justify sitting around and having days off when there's this desperate need. So I signed up and three days I was on the ground in New York. Wow. And so you go to New York City for several days and then you come back home to Virginia. Is that how it works? Like you get several long shifts or how is it working with your work schedule? Right. So I do three 12-hour shifts. I do a 36-hour back-to-back. And then I drive back to my home um, outside D.C., quarantined. I don't go anywhere else. I go straight to my house. And then I homeschool my kids the rest of the week. (laughs) So I would love to know, what is it like in New York City? Is it a war zone like so many are saying? I see a limited amount of New York City because I go from my hotel straight to the hospital. I can't say 
the streets are completely empty and there's police everywhere kind of monitoring the situation. I do drive by the tent set up from different providers that have come. You see the big ship there awaiting more patients. And then as you get to the hospital itself, there's the tent set up outside directing people where to go. So it's a very surreal experience. If you've been to New York City before, you would hardly recognize it without the people. It sounds a little bit like after 9-11. I happened to be there after 9-11, two weeks after 9-11, because my mother was having surgery and there happened to be a hospital there. It was the only one that would perform the surgery on my mother. And I remember walking down to Ground Zero uh, with my father and it was several miles to Ground Zero. And it was like you describe, it's quiet. Like there were people on the streets, but it was just, there was a somber feeling. And I'm sure they're different experiences, but at the same time, dealing with so much death, such a serious situation, I'm sure it, it just impacts the whole city. You, you feel it. What about in the hospital itself? Are you jam-packed with people nonstop? So I was put in, it's a converted PACU, usually seen patients coming out of surgery. It's been converted to an ICU. It's a unit dedicated to the sickest of the sickest, all on ventilators, all sedated, um, this nature. So I am in that uh, makeshift ICU with approximately 13 patients, and I'm in there the entire shift. You don't leave. You're in full protective gear, and that's where you stay, and you care for those patients as they come and go for different reasons. So are most of those patients COVID patients? 100%. I'm on a COVID ICU, correct. Okay. Wow. I I spoke recently to somebody who had had COVID and survived it and asked him this question, but I'd like to hear it from your perspective as well, because I'm hearing people say, there's both ends of the spectrum, right? There's those that say, oh, it's just a flu. Most everybody survives unless you're in a high-risk category. They're making way too much of this disease. And then I hear from other people who are like, oh, this isn't like any flu you've ever experienced. It's deadly. Even if you survive it, you still have suffered through two weeks, three weeks, however long it is of just an absolutely horrific experience. Now, I know you're seeing the worst of the worst, but what's your impression of this disease? Um, So first, it's unlike anything I have ever seen. Um, working in DC on an ICU with ventilators, ECMO pumps, I'm familiar with seeing flu patients need, um, who need those comfort cares um, in the end stages. I would say COVID is completely a different ball game. Um, you feel completely helpless, I think, as a healthcare professional, because there's nothing you can do. Um, these patients are receiving the highest level of support, and even that is often um, not enough. So it's, um, I think it's hard for people to really get a picture of how serious it is unless you actually see it. And I think once you've seen it, um, you're going to be okay with staying inside <laughs> for a couple of weeks. And, and that's not something that I think a lot of people just understand because they don't see it and they think it's, it's not tangible to them. Hmm. Does it make you scared to be working so closely with people who have COVID and obviously there's you had the protective gear and everything else. Yeah, we've had first responders, a lot of first responders, and especially in New York City, who have gotten this disease. Are you scared or how do you manage that fear? Sure. Um, so, yes. <laughs> um, I think 
you should have a certain level of fear when you're going into these situations. I think that keeps you safe. I feel like once I'm in my gear in the room, I'm not scared. I feel protected. I feel like the protective equipment, if it's doing its job properly, I'm safe. When you're taking off, the protective equipment is your most vulnerable time. So I think those moments for me, I do feel those nerves of, you know, turning everything inside out as you're taking it off. Um, You also notice people aren't taking breaks because they don't want to get in and out of that equipment because that is your most vulnerable state. I think there's a lot of risk involved with being a nurse in general, and I've been exposed to different things at different points. And so I think some of it isn't maybe as difficult to wrap your mind around as it would be someone who has, say, a desk job somewhere. Um, You kind of sign up for it, and you see a lot of drama (laughs) working on an ICU constantly. So I'm used to living with a pretty high level of adrenaline. Yeah, so I've talked to others. I talked to a doctor who... Um, said a similar thing, who is saying, this is what we live for. This is what we've trained for. I'm just curious for you, what made you go into this profession and obviously expose yourself to that risk? Sure. As a lot of people who know me um, know, my first pregnancy was twins. It resulted in one surviving twin. They had um, a lot of complications, um, twin to twin transfusion syndrome. And we spent a lot of days in an ICU. And after I was done getting her through those early years and there's different delays and different appointments that need to be made, I really wanted to go back. I remember being in the hospital and sometimes the way the nurse treated me or smiled at me, that actually like kind of made it, made my day or broke my day if I didn't feel like no one's seeing me or giving me information. Um, So I wanted to be that for someone else. And that's kind of what I do on the pediatric ICU is I care for the patients, but I always always have in the back of my mind what those parents are, are wanting to know and not just smiling at them. So I went into it for that. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. And I, I will say for the few times that I've been in the hospital, really just for the, the birth of my children, but the nurses made the experience. And it's such an opportunity to touch somebody in a point where they're really open and receptive to that and need it. And so, yeah, I I think it's a beautiful profession. And one of the things I'm really curious about, because we're hearing a lot about how our healthcare system isn't prepared to deal with the level and the volume of patients coming in right now, and even if there's enough equipment. So I'm wondering, one, is there enough equipment for doctors and nurses and people who are working with patients, the face masks, the, the shields, all of that? And secondly, are there enough ventilators, especially in New York City, where you have so many people that are needing them. As far as the protective equipment, um, yes and no. We have the protective equipment we need, but we need to reuse it for the entire shift. So you don't want to take a break. You don't want to leave the room and have to put it on because when you're exposed to it, it's going to be when you're taking it on and off, right? Because it's mm-hmm. It should be on the outside of your protective equipment. So we have a visor we wear over both our masks. We only get one visor shift and we're, we're wiping it down with antibacterial wipes um, when we come back into the room. Um, so at the end, we have um, one N95 mask for the entire shift and we cover that with a surgical mask to keep it clean, to keep it from getting saturated. But honestly, you are hot, you're sweaty. It's just it's hard to properly take off a mask 
and then come back and put it back on. So I think that there's um, a huge risk for exposure by doing that. So it's a yes and no. As far as ventilators, are there enough? I don't know because all my patients are on ventilators um, right now. But what I, I do know is even if we get a bunch more ventilators, I don't know where they're going to find people to work them. So that's the problem right now is that we do not have enough beds. We don't have enough staff. A typical IC ratio for a nurse would be one, sometimes two ventilated patients. I've had six or seven. I, I mean, that's, that's outrageous. So I don't know about the ventilators, but you can manufacture ventilators rather quickly. You can't manufacture healthcare workers that quick. Wow. And so you really desperately need healthcare workers right now in New York City. Desperately, desperately. They will plug you in the next day. (laughs) They will, and and they're making all kinds of exceptions with licensing. I think some um, healthcare professionals worry they're not licensed in New York, there's ways around that. So I'm only licensed in Virginia and DC. Yeah, absolutely, desperately, hundreds of physicians are open. And, you know, I do hear a lot about with the economy, a lot of people don't have jobs. And so I would say, at least for healthcare professionals, there's a ton of jobs out there and they're begging for it. Yeah. If there's people listening right now who are able to do that. Oh, I hope um, so. And I know I've talked to some healthcare professionals who are feeling the pull and feeling guilty staying home. And I think feeling exactly like you did when you were in Virginia, why, why don't I go? Tell me, do you have any stories of interactions with, with patients or with their families that have, that have impacted you? Because, I mean, obviously you're dealing with people who are really close to death. And I'm guessing there might be some of those opportunities, I don't know, because you might just be working with them when they're intubated, there's not going to have much of a, of an interaction, but maybe with their families. Have you had any of those? Sure. Majority of my patients, by the time I get them, they're already intubated, sedated, often paralyzed, um, chemically paralyzed. So a lot of my interactions have been with the family members. One patient in particular, we'd consider on the younger side, forties, the daughter, constantly calling in on his phone. So it's sitting there and ringing or vibrating on his table. And he, you know, he's not going to be able to get to that. Um, I have full protective equipment on. I have an insane caseload and I see this daughter calling in and just trying to make those connections where possible to do the video feed where you can show the family member, the patient. Just so you're recently. talking to, to her on the phone and like showing her, her dad and, and trying to comfort her through that? You're trying to do that. It is one of the hardest parts that I think some people can't maybe visualize is the lack of information the families get and even Mm -hmm. that the patients um, are getting from their families. There's no visitors. Every person in the hospital is overworked and taxed. And so when it comes to a choice of making a phone call or giving a life-saving medication, you have to go with the medicine. And yet on the back of your mind is always like the family doesn't even know what's going on right now. They, in some cases I haven't experienced this, but I've heard family members don't even know which hospital their family member was taken to. Um, so, um, that is a, a new element to this position that I'm not used to. I'm used to dealing with the medicine and the family in the room. I am not used to being, first of all, the sole emotional caregiver, 
for the patient while I'm caring for them, but then also trying to navigate how to update the family and find the family. Wow. So that it definitely adds a level of complexity. I've heard that one of the really sad things about this is that when you die from COVID, you die alone because nobody's with you, right? That is true. And by far the most horrific element of COVID, in my opinion, is you never get used to seeing people die ever. But I do see it a lot in, in the unit I work at at home and in New York City. But I have never seen patients dying and knowing they're dying without having a loved one holding their hand or telling them how much they love them. And I would say the same is true for the families. I cannot imagine what it must be like to be waiting by the phone wondering, or am I going to get a call? They're better. Am I going to get a call? They died. That's, that's horrific. The family doesn't even come into the hospital, do they? No, they're not allowed, period. No visitors. And once you're intubated, there's no way for them to talk. No, so it's horrific. Oh, that's just awful. So uh, of the people on your unit, what percent are getting better and what percent are dying? I don't want to cast a negative light for, I'm, I guess I fear sometimes saying these things because of the people who come, we treat them actively like they're able to recover, but we do see 95 to 100% of the patients who make it to my unit or will die. Wow. And so they have different levels of ICU in the hospital. They have, and there's different, you know, levels of care. And so we're getting the sickest of the sickest of the sickest. They're, they're very sick. Wow. And I'm guessing you've never seen that much death. No, never. I, and I don't even know. I mean, at this point, you're going from working at the hospital, quarantining a couple of days, homeschooling your kids, and, and then back to the war zone again. Have you had any chance to process this? Or do you feel like it's one of those things you just kind of set on the shelf and I'll process this when I'm done? Yeah, I do. Um, I do process it. I, I go back to the hotel by myself. So my kids are not in the hotel with me when I'm coming back. And I am so overstimulated from sounds and sights and chaos that I usually just end up sitting there. I'm so tired. I don't watch TV. I don't do anything. And I think that's when for the first time I actually am processing what just happened. It's not in the moment that I'm feeling heartbroken for the family or the patients. I I mean, I'm there to do a job. I'm, I'm just constantly bombarded with tasks. It's afterwards that um, honestly, I'm thinking about the families and I'm wondering, did they get the call already? Or, you know, who was part of the, this man's family? Does he have a wife? Does he have kids? That kind of stuff. So yeah, definitely you think about it. You think about mm. it a lot. Mm. Oh, I'm sure. I, I know one of the things that you mentioned is that through this spiritually, it's, it's just been hard. And you had come out of, and this was in the story that I did, and you're still in the midst of a, a struggle with your ex-husband who you were in an abusive relationship. And those who have read the, your story, and I'm guessing a lot of people who are listening, have read your story. And it's been a difficult journey for you. But spiritually, and you can share as much as you feel comfortable with, but how are you processing this with the Lord, do you feel that you are, you know, how, how's your faith doing in the midst of all this? Yeah, that's, that's a complicated um, question and answer. I would say my faith most definitely has taken a hit 
over the last you know few years, but particularly particularly in the last year as things came to a front with harvest and and going through the court system with the trials. And now with this, it's hard for me to pinpoint where I'm at. I would say on my spiritual journey, I think my faith looks very different than it did two or three years ago. I think um, parts of it are stronger in that I am absolutely assured there is a God. Yet at the same point, I feel very disillusioned in some ways by the church and by Christians themselves. And just kind of working through the bitterness, I think, of that. I would say I'm fighting for it. I'm not ready to give up. But I think I have um, right now more doubts, perhaps, right now than I do answers. Um, I think those doubts are probably a lot louder to me right now than Scripture is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I don't know where this is going to take me at this point, but... Yeah. And and for those who are listening, if you haven't read Anne's story, you can do it. You can read it, uh, her story at, at my website, julieroys.com. And there's a story there about how Harvest failed to protect wives from abuse. And you had a, a husband who was a, a pastor and for 12 years was pastoring within the Harvest Bible Fellowship, the former church planning network of Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. And you weren't protected by the very people who should have protected you and by the people who were supposed to be shepherding and, and they didn't, and the church did let you down. And I think we all grieve with you over that. And, um, and I'm sorry, what happened to you should never happen to anyone ever. And it's wrong and it was sin. And, um, and you were so brave in telling your story and, bringing some light into a situation that for so often, you know, it's just sort of put in a corner and nobody talks about it. And I think as a result, there's, I mean, I heard from a lot of women who have been abused, who were really ministered to that. So, you know, I just want to thank you for doing that. That took as much bravery or maybe more even than what you're doing now serving in New York. So thank you. Well, that's fine, Julie. Um, I appreciate it. And um, that makes me think just going back to the beginning, how you open things with saying about the medical um, professionals being heroes and, and these very kind words. And certainly I take them to heart and believe me, I think we all need the encouragement for sure. I, I think that ties into what we were saying, even with the church and how it's affecting my faith is I think I'm surprised sometimes by how heroic Christians think I have been through this because sometimes I just see these events as isn't this what we should be doing. Mm-hmm. And I would say that even going to New York, I'm trained for a job and there's a demand for that job. So I go. Mm-hmm. And I guess things that we might consider heroic is what I'm seeing lacking in some senses in some churches, not all churches. I see a limited amount and just um, seeing people do things that it might cost you, it might cost you to stick up for that woman or it might cost your ministry to speak out on the abuse or it might cost you to leave your family and go but if you have it within your means and ability to do something to do good, do it. <laughs> and I appreciate people telling me they're going to pray for me. And I appreciate people sending me scripture. But sometimes I think, just go do something. <laughs> and I, I don't even know as Christians if we should say that's heroic to stand up for abuse victims or to stand up for dying patients as much as it is 
that should be a very regular occurrence. And that's the part where I feel a little bit disillusioned with the church and watching the response to COVID, to abuse, to any of these um, hardships. I guess that's been a challenge to me. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. And I don't know how many people, I guess why I see it as heroic is because I do ask so many people that have the capacity to tell their stories and to bring light. And there's a sizable proportion who don't. And the reason they don't is exactly what you said, that it would cost them something. And I think we have forgotten Jesus' words, that if we need, if we want to follow after him, we must deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. That should be normal for Christians. And so I hear you and amen. Amen to everything you said. But lastly, because I know people would want an update with your situation, I think at the end of my article, you had just gone through a court battle with your husband to get custody of your kids. You obviously do have custody, although I think it's shared. But your husband recently, I've seen the documents, which are public documents, where he was charged recently with assault and you got a protective order against him. So, I mean, what's next for you and how does that impact your situation? There's limited amounts I can um, share because it is an ongoing case um, with mm-hmm. a pending trial. I think things continue to move forward but very, very slowly. The court system, it's slow. It's extraordinarily expensive. It's taxing. But there's, there's forward movement. Share more about with the, with the pending trial. I, I don't want to do anything to jeopardize that. I totally understand that. Having been on the receiving end of a lawsuit, I know that often there's much more that you could say that you can't say uh, because of that. So I think lastly, I'd just like to know how we can pray for you and pray for others who are serving with you on the front lines of this whole COVID crisis. I appreciate that. Um, really, my, my biggest prayer would be <laughs> Possibly you could say for my sanctification, I think it can be easier for me to go into work than it is to come home from that experience and then yet still be fully present, patient, loving, and kind as I'm homeschooling my kids. So there's just a lot of dynamics. So just for me as a single mom, there's a pretty big uh, amount of isolation um, and loneliness. I think you feel as a single parent during this time, I think People feel lonely for different reasons, but not having someone, you know, at the end of the day to come home and process the hospital with, no one to share the burden with um, schooling, I think is just kind of amplified that isolation that much more. Yeah. I mean, all of us are kind of, we're at a stay-at-home order. A lot of people are around the country. Most everybody is now. And that has its own challenges, but you're with your family. And for you, so much of your life right now is in isolation. And then being on an ICU, that's that's intense. So could I just pray for you right now? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Father, I thank you for Anne. And I thank you for her sacrifice and the sacrifice of so many nurses and doctors and first responders right now. Lord, we ask that you would be with them. You would protect them. And Lord, we ask for a lifting of this scourge, really, that's on our country and on the whole world right now, that you would quickly uh, bring this coronavirus pandemic to an end or at least to an easing. But Lord, we ask in the midst of it that you would use this difficulty for our own sanctification. And like Anne said, to be able to process this in a way that would move us to a better place, Lord, as people. And Lord, I do just ask for for Anne, Lord, as she 
so openly and vulnerably talked about her own doubts and struggling with bitterness of those who have really disappointed her in the church. Father, I pray that you would bring healing to that. And Lord, that she would know the depth of your love and the depth of your grieving over what happened to her and the depth of your anger at your church for not behaving the way that it should have and for people, Christian leaders who didn't protect her in the way that they should have. And Lord, we pray for her ex-husband, Lord, that you would bring him to repentance over his sin and over what he has done. We commit all these things into your hands and in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you, Julie. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. And I just so appreciate everything you're doing. And thanks for being willing to come on this podcast and and take this time with us. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, and thanks so much for listening to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's. And if you'd like to find me online, just go to julieroy's, spelled R-O-Y-S dot com. Hope you have a great day.